0: It's interesting uh, for me the other week... I, I got into one of those wrestling matches. I don't know if you've been involved in one of these in your home or not. If you don't have children, maybe you, you can look back and, and maybe you're a Christian parent trying to raise your kids. It's not as easy to get your kids to read the Bible as you think. Amen? Anybody there with me? I mean I'm the pastor and I'm having trouble. So that, that gives you an idea. My kids know the Bible stories inside, outside, upside down, and they are just they so it kinda comes to this point where the other day my son Nate was bored and I got into this conversation again with him. He's like, I'm bored. I'm like well, go read your Bible. He's like, I don't want to read my Bible. That's uh, boring. I'm like, so time out. You told me you want to start reading your Bible. You know, using the little guilt pressure on him. He's like, Okay, I'm like, just read it for five minutes. Go enjoy it. Go check it out. And he's like, I don't know where to even start. I'm like, start in Matthew chapter five because I didn't want to tell him start in Matthew chapter one because that's like the genealogy, and then you're into Christmas, and it's always weird. You're always reading Christmas because you restart. Anybody ever done that? Like restarted Matthew over and over. And so he, this would be like the fifth time he started Matthew. So I'm like, go to chapter five and, and go from there. So he dives into chapter five, and he's gone for about you know 20 minutes. He goes plays some video games. So eventually, he comes downstairs. And he says, Dad. Dad, he's got this kind of cocky, like, know-it-all attitude on him suddenly. I'm like, what's going on? He's like, you know, the Bible is an amazing book. People should read this more often. It would be, it would be better for their lives. And I'm like, what do you think I do for a living? Come on, kid. And so he, he, he proceeds to tell me, did you know that the Bible says we shouldn't call people stupid? I'm like... Yes, I did. And he's he's like, this is amazing. I didn't know the Bible could be so practical. And he's just going off. And later we're getting in the car and my son Jonathan and my son Andrew are sitting just in the van just behind me. And Jonathan's saying something and suddenly he goes, You're stupid. And Nate goes, No, we should not be calling each other stupid. The Bible says so. My daughter says, No, 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 no. My translation does not say stupid. And suddenly they get into a translation war on which one has the right translation over cursing or saying names or stupid And I'm like, this is the pastor's life. The kids are arguing over translations. So... But my son landed on something that I think is important for us as Christians to remember. You see, it is vacation time period, and you've been here, you've been gone, you've been back, and all of us can have routines that we find ourselves in. Nate, a lot of my routine is based around my work. I don't know about you. And yes, even I have a routine that can be interrupted by a vacation. Because you have a set routine, you get up at a certain time, you get moving during the day, you start going, you, you may be reading your Bible at a particular moment throughout your week, and you may be thinking about it at certain times, maybe on your commute, or however you've figured it out. I have found vacation time and summertime to be invariably one of those times where it can be so much about you getting a break and you relaxing that you forgot there's this thing called the Bible. Anybody been there? It's just kind of like, oh yeah, I was reading that chapter and I just haven't picked it up. I've gotten so busy with relaxing. And that's not really what our goal is. It's really to take that time with God when we're not doing anything else, to, to spend some time and focused uh, time with the Lord. But there's also this problem that my children run into and I run into because maybe you've been to Bible school or maybe you've been a Christian for years and years and years that you've read the Bible. Maybe you've read the Bible three or four times in your life and it's sort of like been there, done that. Man, this is just like the same genealogy over and over every year. I don't know. How many times do I have to read this thing? I know what Jesus is going to say there. Yep, he went to the cross again. Nothing new. You know, it's almost not surprising. And so you've kind of gotten out of the habit of maybe reading the Bible because every time you try... It's sort of like, yeah, I've been there. Yeah, I know this. I, I, could, I could teach this. And, and so the challenge, though, is that some of you are at the beginning of your stage, of your, of your entire Christian journey, and you've never read through the Bible. You, you, you're looking at the thing like it's daunting, like my son, where do I even start? How do I even engage this? How do I think about it? And so what, we, what I want to do as a church is I want to challenge us that we don't have to live there. We don't have to live in the idea that you've been there, done that, or that it's so big I don't know what to do, but that you and I can consistently be going through the scriptures every year or every couple of years and it never get old, that it never will stop growing and developing for you in your spiritual life. And what, I, what we've done then is you, hopefully you were handed one of these. If you didn't, you were, were, they're available. And this is a little Bible reading plan. And this is we're using a chronological study or, uh, plan of reading. And you can get through the Bible in one year. We didn't put days on it. So you can just make sure that if you fall behind, you don't have to freak out. It's like, it's not the right date, you know, for, but it's day one, day two, day three. But the other thing is you don't have to use this reading plan. There are other ones available out there on the internet and through various apps. And you can select that. But what I want you guys to understand is not so much the reading plan, but I want you to see the four questions at the top of the first page. These four reflective questions are important because I believe they can help any of us who've been through the Bible for years or have never been through the Bible. Not just get into the mode of, I read it, I read it, I read it, whoops. But you want to get to the place that you're thinking about what you're reading. That is engaging your soul. It's challenging you in a day to day transformation. It's a it's a day to day application to your life, not just of read it, I've read it, I've read it. This isn't information download. This is God introducing Himself to you and challenging you to grow. And so these four questions are not developed by me. They were developed by a missions team, and they use them overseas to help people as they go through the stories of the Bible to find out what is what are you learning about who God is and about humanity and and what's going on. And so these four questions have been laid out for us as a church to begin a journey of development. Because the word of God is central in yours and my growth as Christians. Jesus has just finished saying that we were going to be left in this world and we're not to be of this world. And he said the way that that's going to happen is you're going to be different, sanctified. And in John 17, 17, he says, sanctify them in the truth, Jesus prayed for his church. Your word is truth. The Word of God is the truth that transforms who we are. It shapes what we're going to be like. And that if you, I guarantee you, if you are in the Word of God every day for a year, reflecting and thinking about it, you will be a different person by the end of that year. You will be thinking differently. You will understand life differently. You will live at your job differently. And you'll worship God differently. You see, God's not looking for just emotions. He's not looking for us just to connect with the songs we like, but he looks for worshipers who worship him in spirit and in truth. In John 4, 23, when he's talking to the woman at the well, he tells her the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. And what you have here is an awesome opportunity for you to engage in the book that the Spirit of God himself has put together that you have an awesome opportunity here to engage in the truth and not just read it, but to actually reflect and challenge yourself on it. Now, I could dive into this and go like, and here are the words and here's the questions and here's what you need to do in each question and give you all this methodology and teach you. But instead, what we're going to do this summer is every sermon from here through the next few weeks, we're going to ask these four questions. We're just going to show you how it works. We're going to do it on stage together. We're going to Bible study this out every week. You can do it in a small chunk like we're going to do on Sundays, or you can do it in a big chunk like you would do in a reading where you read four chapters. But these four questions are what we're going to engage in to help us as a church begin to be meditating and thinking and reflecting on Scripture and not just reading it. So you guys ready for this? You ready to go? Let's check it out. So go ahead and grab your Bibles open up to John chapter 18. We're going to start where we left off in the book of John. We're going to go through verses 1 through 12. If you haven't been with us in John, and you'd been reading John, you would know that Jesus has just finished releasing his disciples. He said, guys, I'm taking off. I'm going to my father. In other words, I'm going to die. I'm leaving you alone, but don't worry about it. I'm leaving you the Holy Spirit. You're going to be okay. And then he goes on to pray for them. We just went through the prayer two weeks ago, and then we saw that what Jesus prays for them is that they would be unified. They would be in this world, but not of this world and on his mission. And they are prepared by the work of Jesus and the word of God to do those things. And so, he just finishes kind of praying through this, and now Jesus steps towards the cross. The rest of this journey or these next few weeks is him going to the cross and dying on that cross. And so we start here. If you've got your Bible open, begin in verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he, was, which he and his disciples entered. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servants and servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So that Jesus said to Peter, put your sword in its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the father has given me? So we'll pause there. Now we've read it and we've looked at it. The next thing is to ask our first question. What did you learn about God in this small few verses? And you start going like, what did I learn about God? It's just a story about Jesus getting arrested. There's something to learn about God. Well, stop and remember that Jesus is God. What you read about Jesus is about what God does. So if you want to reflect on what you learn about God, look at Jesus and look carefully at him. And so we begin this way. Here are the few reflections I picked up on. First of all is the fact that God in this text shows us that he willingly from his love died and went to the cross for our sins. I don't see that, Greg. Where are you getting that from? Well, stop and pause for a minute. Look at the text. Look again. He's, here it begins this way. What do we learn about God? Look at verse 4. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him. Well, pause right there. What did we learn about God there? That God knew already what was going to occur. Jesus already knew he was going to the cross. He already knew how this was all going to play out. And so knowing what was going to happen to him, it doesn't say he picked up and hightailed it out of here. He didn't go like, well, I'm going to die. Run! You know, he didn't say that. Instead, it says he stepped forward. Knowing what would happen to him, came forward to this mob of crowds with swords and torches and weapons of various kinds. And he said, who are you looking for? Who do you seek? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Now, here's what's fascinating. not only is he brave to step forward, knowing this is going to take him to the cross, knowing he's going to be arrested, he then says something powerful. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back to the ground and fell. So they said, we're looking for Jesus Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And these guys fall backwards. Now, time out for a minute. When you see this word, I am he, you, you would know if you'd read through your Bible, you'd come to this place where that's the name of God. That God is the I am. He's saying, I am Yahweh. I am Jehovah. I am this Jesus of Nazareth. I am God. And when he says, I am He, there's so much power coming from the name of God. This group is stunned and falls down. Now I don't know about you, that doesn't happen when I use my name. You know, hi, I'm Greg. And who's that? Eh, thanks. I'm the other pastor, Greg. Oh, that Greg. No, sorry. The the reality in this situation is that Jesus' name is powerful. Now stop and think about this. Jesus knows where he's going, and he says, I am, and the crowd falls over. What kind of power does God have? The God is so powerful, so capable of of controlling the setting, his own name knocks people down. If you've got a weapon like your own name to knock people down, all he had to simply say is, I am, and you are no longer. And it's over. They evaporate into nothingness. Here is Jesus with all of this power, the name of God himself, knowing where he's going, And yet, in the end, he says, put your sword in its sheath, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? You know what I learned about God here? He had every opportunity to escape the cross. He had the knowledge, he had the power, and he could have chosen to not go to the cross, but he loved you and he loved me so much, he willingly went He restrained his power. He restrained every bit of his knowledge, knowing that he was going to a brutal, horrible situation in which he would have spikes driven through the very nerve. You ever hit your funny bone nice and hard? I mean, really hard to where it's burning on fire? That's the same nerve that gets severed when you get crucified. So you can imagine the same nerve here, the same nerve here. Every time you pull up to get a breath, they're on fire. Every time you pull down, not to mention your back is raw from being flogged. And this wood ain't that nice. And there's tons of infections all over the place. And you've got a head that's burning from bougainvillea that's spiked into your head. You ever touch bougainvillea and getting it into your skin? It's painful. I mean, this is just the physical pain that Jesus is feeling as he's asphyxiating, trying to get air on the cross, let alone that the whole of hell for our sins is unleashed upon him, and spiritually, he is in the darkest, most crushed location a human being could ever be. Knowing you're going there, and you have every power to stop it from happening, shows you how much he loves you reveals to you that God never gave up on you. He could have quit in the moment. He knew you when he went to that cross. He knew your sin when he went to that cross. He knows us so much. He knows me so well that at that cross, he's willing to bear our sin. That's a heck of a loving God, amen? What else did I learn about God? That he has this plan and it's gonna happen. I mean, here Jesus knows what's going on, but then he goes on to say, I am, Je- I am I'm the one who told you I am he, so if you seek me, let these men go. So why did he say that? This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Jesus is going to stand firm on his word. He has this plan for these guys and God had this plan. He's already prayed. These guys are going to be protected and he's going to set it out. Now, Peter's going to do everything he can to stop it, right? Can you imagine that? He just said, you know, he's going to fulfill the word spoken. Of those you gave me, I've lost not one. Then Simon Peter pulled out a sword and attacked the high priest's servant. Hello, Peter? Are you trying to make this a problem? You know, you want to get arrested? Go attack the high priest's servant who is representing the high priest, the highest person in the Jewish In Jewish culture and reality. And he goes, "Ah!" And now Peter's going to be arrested. Peter's going to be thrown in jail. And Jesus manages to get Peter out of the mess. We know that he heals Malchus's ear. We know that he rebukes Peter. All of this is in an effort to keep Peter from being arrested. And isn't it funny? They don't arrest Peter, who did something wrong. They arrest Jesus, who did nothing wrong. And so here, Jesus is protecting his men because he has a plan. He's already said these guys aren't gonna fail. They're not gonna they're gonna be used later. I need to keep them all. It also reflects to me that God loves us in such a way that he protects us. Now you could time out for a second. What do you mean he protects us? I'm going through all kinds of suffering. Don't take an eternal truth and put it into to a temporal situation. That's what, that's what Jared taught us last week, remember? Too often we take an eternal truth. God will protect you, and we drop it into a temporal situation. We go like, well, he's not protecting me right now. I've got cancer. I'm dying of this. No, no. Ultimately, we who are in Christ are protected from death and disease. You will raise from the dead. You will have eternal life where it will never happen again. He protects His disciples. He protects them, and He guides them into this plan because He needs the church, and He wants the church to explode in this world to save people. He protects you and me when we're on mission. He wants us to bring this message to the world. He wants this knowledge to get out there. And so, yes, He loves us, and He died for us on the cross, and this God will protect us because He has a plan And not even Peter's messes are going to mess it up. None of my messes are going to mess it up. God will make it happen. Now that should give you some relief. But before we quickly move on to applying it to ourselves, which is what I have a tendency to want to do, let's just stop for a minute like I would do at this point. And let's just thank God for who he is, for what we just learned about him. Would you do that with me? Let's bow our heads. God, I'm... I'm blown away every service so far and as I've studied this, just how much you love us. That you had every choice to not even create this world and to not um, bear our sins and yet, Jesus, you chose to do so. Jesus, thank you that even though we were rebelling against you, even though we were a mess, you continued to love us. God, you're an awesome God of love. You are an awesome God. God. Of wisdom. You know all things, you have great power, and you're able to protect us. And it's mind-blowing. Thank you, and we ask that you would just continue to teach us more and more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, now that moves us to the next question then. What did I learn about humans? What did I learn about people? Well, this isn't that pretty. Well, God's pretty amazing. We start diving into this situation, and I start with this. I mean, just take a basic start. You've got Jesus going out with his disciples into this garden, and Judas, somebody who's close to Jesus, is betraying him with the Jewish leadership. Israel, the people who are supposed to know God, are all out to betray and get him. This, this just shows me, you know what the bottom line is? Humanity is in rebellion against God. I know, it's like, that's not an observation that's new. Of course it's not. But think about how deep this rebellion is, guys stop and look at what the text is. These are the Jewish leadership. These are the, the priests. These guys knew the Bible. They were the good guys. They knew Jesus was coming. This isn't some Gentile. How many of you guys have had like your DNA tested? Anybody out there found out where you're from and, what you, and all this stuff? Okay, I've never done that. And I'm pretty sure though, I don't have any Jew, Jewishness in me. None of my background comes from Israel. I'm a, just a pagan Gentile. You know, my family worshiped Thor and and probably thought Loki was an interesting guy. You know, maybe they were running around going, Zeus, Zeus, don't kill me, whatever. But that's the ancestry I've got. And it's ugly if you ever research it. Let alone, am I going to look at the Jewish God and go, yeah, that's the one that I want. That's not my God of my ancestors. So you would expect that the Jewish people who love this God, who hold his book, who know him when he comes and meets them, that they're not, they're going to go like, well, you're here, give us a hug, we're so happy. No, they go, get lost, we don't want you here. Humanity's in such rebellion that those who ought to know God don't. They kick him out, they want to crucify him. Judas, who knew Jesus, betrays him. How deep is this? It's really deep. And I'm reminded constantly as I've seen people who, who are strong Christians walk away. A, a young guy in my youth youth ministry, I'll call him Tony, was just excited about Jesus. He was so pumped up about it that we would get engaged and we would start talking. And one day after, after a certain event, we actually ended up writing a song based on one of his dreams and, and something. It was probably one of my favorite songs we've ever kind of penned. And so as I got to engage with him on that, it was so interesting as years later, he a year or so later, he wound up in another church because he wanted more experience and deeper stuff with Jesus. And he's just getting further and further engaged. And next thing I know, he he calls. I run into him. He's like, oh, I'm not, I'm not doing that Jesus thing anymore. I'm like, what? What happened? He's like, you know, I just, I know who I am. And I, I just wasn't being me with Jesus. Jesus was trying to make, this Jesus thing was trying to make me somebody I wasn't. And he get, clarified it so perfectly. You see, when people come into rebellion, they want to guide their own ships. They want to have their own answers. They want to go where life is is going because they want to go there. And Jesus comes along and he says, nope, this is where I have for you. I've made you and this is the direction I have. And he's like, I don't want anything to do with that. And his rebellion pushed it out. It pushed it away. Humanity is such rebellion, guys. We don't even realize it. If you've been shocked when your children come out against Christ, don't be. Some of us, we've tried hard. We choose educational structures. We choose youth groups and churches. And we choose all kinds of different concepts and sports teams and things like that. And the movies they watch. And we do all this protection to keep them from ever rejecting Jesus. Don't be shocked when they do. You see, just because we put them in the right playing field doesn't mean rebellion isn't in the heart. You cannot legislate nor educate nor do any other form to rid the rebellion of humanity from the heart. Otherwise, Judas would have never rebelled because Jesus is the perfect teacher. Adam and Eve never would have rebelled because God was the perfect parent. And unless we're ready to face the reality, our children are prone and ready to rebel just as much as we were and we are, we're going to end up trusting other things other than Jesus Christ for their salvation. And it's important that I say that because the danger really falls into that we want too often to control these things. And we don't trust how deeply rebellious we are. Yet here you have Israel and Judas and even Peter rebelling against the plan of God. Now, what I find even more fascinating is how much we rebel. Here Jesus says, I am. And there's so much power, people fall over. And you, wouldn't you think that some of these guys had a brain, right? They like got up after being knocked over by some guy's word. And they're like, what's my sword going to do? You know, it's like, I got a torch. Whoopee! You know, it's like, okay, see you later. No, they go on. They ignore God's power and just go ahead and arrest him. I don't think that's any different than any other people I know. How many of us in this room have rejected God's power? as an explanation for his existence. Look at the world, look at science, look at, the, look at the stars, the finely tuned reality so this planet could have life. Just look at one cell in your skin and you'll discover a powerful factory that's greater than some of the factories we've ever, we've ever created, let alone a genetic code that has more information than the Library of Congress, and a coding system that's better than anything Microsoft or Apple's ever seen. And yet, what's our explanation to the beginning of the universe? Ah, yeah, there must be multiple universes. Well, we can't test it or find it. That's the end. Oh, what is the explanation for having all of this information in a cell? Aliens. <laughs> really? We are willing to ignore God's power and God's design and the creation and the wonder of this world, even in philosophy and other things where God shines over and over and over again because we've made up our minds. And you know what? Most of us made up our minds in junior high. I, I've known more people who are atheists because back in junior high, they kind of were like, yeah, yeah I don't think God exists anymore. You know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just suggest something. That when it comes to understanding reality and life and death and your purpose for existence and the end of the world and whether there's a God, I'd want to trust more than a junior high level of education. I think life and death and eternity is a little bit more important than surgery. And I would never trust my body to a surgeon with a junior high education. Why are we laying our ideas at our junior high selves or high school selves? Shouldn't you investigate this further? The power of God is everywhere. And yet we see it and we go, "Eh, I made up my mind. Let's arrest him. And that's how deeply the rebellion can go. It's how far it can extend. And in fact, it extends to you and me as humans who try to constantly make our own way with God. And what I notice here with Peter is that Peter pulls his sword out. He's like, rebellion, let's do it. And he attacks, thinking Jesus is launching a rebellion to take over Israel and then all of the world. And so Peter's now gonna horn Jesus in to his idea of life. And how often do we do that? Do we, God has this plan, and we go, that's great, God. I got a better one. Now, come join me. Be on my plan. If you are for me, who can be against me? Come on. We quote our Bible verses, and we do everything we can because it's our plan. We got it made, and Peter goes, it's our plan. And Jesus goes, nuh-uh, buddy. Put it away. How do you think Peter felt about that? I think you'll know next week when he says, I don't know that, Jesus. God has his plan and humans have theirs. And too often we try to pull him into our own plans. And this is where it turns for me, honestly. And when it starts to ask that question, what does this show me about myself? Here's what I found out about myself. I am prone to try to do things my own way. And this is a bit personal for me, so I'll just share it because it's going to be different for you. As you examine this text and you make those observations and you start to think about, what is this telling me about myself? You ask God and he'll show you and you'll start to go, wow, man, I am, I do. I try to control my kids' lives. I I don't trust God with them. Not saying that we shouldn't give them a good foundation. I do that too. But man, if they rebelled, I think I would fall apart. No, that's not the point. Maybe that's where God hits you. Maybe God hits you in that, man, yeah, I got a junior high education and I'm trying to think through about God. That's, that's not a good spot to, I don't know, but you know what for me was? My heart is way too wed to the attendance of this church. I'm trying way too hard and I'm way too prone to try to make it happen my own way. You know, I want everything for you guys to reach your neighbors. I want everything for us to reach all of Corona. I want to see us engage and see books written and see music written and see you guys jump in and touch your and start businesses that transform lives and serve people. I want to be an answer to our governmental problems as a church, not whiners or complainers. I want to be people who come up with ministry concepts that help to develop an American world that is beautiful and powerful. But you know what? That's my plan. And God constantly reminds me of that when I go home sad because attendance was down. What's wrong with that in my heart? I'm standing there going, yeah! And he's going, uh-uh. And I'm going, really, not this Lord? Okay. <laughs> and to be honest, I'm scared. There's a part of me that's scared of what God's plan is for my life. That it's not going to be the plan that I have, the yeah, amazing, yeah! No, he's that's like, My biggest fear is to wind up in a church in the Midwest with 125 people in it. I've had bad dreams about that scenario. And that's because I'm an ambitious person. I never did anything in my life that was like, yeah, I'm good. You know, I'm like, I want to be better than the most people that I know. I don't need to be the best. I just need to be better than most people I know. So it bothers me that I'm the other Pastor Greg in town. You know, that bugs me. But this is just my problem. And what he's pointing to me here is he's saying, you are trying too hard to make your things happen. You're trying too hard to use your talent, your personality, your ways. I'm not on my knees enough. I'm not talking to him enough. I don't know what yours is, but you need to write it down. What is God telling you and showing you about yourself? Because if you don't engage that question, why are you reading the Bible? You learned about God. You learned about humanity. (laughs) Wonderful. You got a great education. But it ought to be turned to what does it tell you about you? And then finally, what am I going to do about it? What I've done is so far, the first thing I wrote is I am going to write on, my, on a card and put it on my mirror that says, God has the right plan. Surrender it to him. That's what I did. I put it up there. It's been on my mirror. So when I'm brushing my teeth, I'm reminding myself, that guy you're looking at in the mirror is not as good as you think he is. Trust God. He's got it. He's the one who loved you so much, he chose the plan to save you, though he could have chosen otherwise. He's the one who's so good with his plan, not even Peter could mess it up in the moment. God has a good plan. He loves you. Trust him in it. And so the two things that I said is I have that and that I would surrender my plan to God every morning while this was in my mind. And that's my application. It's something I will do. What are you going to do today? What are you going to do about it? Because it's not going to change you if you don't still answer that question of what you're going to do from what we've learned today about God, about people, and about yourself. Can you imagine applying that daily to your life as you read through the Bible? The kind of insights you'd gain about God, the kind of insights you'd gain about people, the kind of insights you'd gain about yourself and the kind of actions that you would begin to produce, it would revolutionize a church in a year. If you just simply ask yourself those four questions as you read through your Bible, this isn't a boring book. It's just a scary book. It's not so much that it's difficult to read. It's that it's amazingly difficult to live. Not because it's hard to do, but because we're rebellious. And I want to encourage you guys, let's get into the Word. Let's see what God does. And let's continue to press ourselves into Him. Amen? I hope you'll join with me in this. So let's go ahead and pray. Father, thank you for the opportunity we have in your Word. Thank you for the opportunity that we have to be challenged. I know that you've been um, pounding on my door all week. And God, I want to surrender myself over to you and I want to surrender over my mood and my attitude and the plans that you have for all of us in the church. It's not on me, it's on you. And God, I want to lift up whatever you've convicted our, congrega- our congregants, our, my brothers and sisters here about. Whether it's control or whether it's a matter of, of trying to ensure that They've, they've not thought about you enough, or, or God, they've not been in the Word. Whatever it is today that you have placed on their heart, I pray that you'd empower them and enable them to do it, to live it out. And God, even though our observations sometimes seem so duh, they are so amazingly powerful when you put them into our hearts. And so I pray for just a transformation over us, and that you'd lead us as we go through this next phase and journey in your Word together.